Hey everyone, welcome to Giant Bomb Presents. This is Austin Walker, editor at GiantBomb.com. Today I'm speaking with David Craddock, uh, who is the author of Dungeon Hacks, which is a book that kind of looks at the early history of the genre that we now know as the roguelike. Welcome, David. Hey, Austin. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, you know, you sent me a copy of your book about a month ago, and I finally had the chance to sit down and read through it, and I really enjoyed it. Um, Great. Uh, what, what, I guess a little background on yourself, first of all. Uh, can you tell me just in, in our audience a little bit about who you are and, and what you write about and, and why you write about the stuff you do? Sure. I am a writer, an author, and a Dark Souls 2 evangelist. <laughs> Fair. Uh, <laughs> me too, by the way. I'm also <laughs> team Dark Souls 2. Yeah, man. So, it's, it's the best. It's the best. Um, We'll come back yeah, around to that at the end. Let's let's. I'm making a note. We're going to come back around to talking about Dark Souls two in a bit. <laughs> oh yeah, we could go on for days. I'm sure. Uh, no, I've been writing uh, since 2004 about video games. I started as um, a freelancer, but more a volunteer, kind of the the candy striper of the video game journalism industry, <laughs> just doing reviews and news as as it came along, and then started writing professionally, meaning for a paycheck in 2005 when. I was a contract editor for Shack News for a couple years and have just kind of been working my way through the freelance ranks ever since, written for uh, some magazines, official Xbox magazine, PlayStation, the official magazine, uh, probably some I'm forgetting at this point. Um, <laughs> as as a really former like freelancer, I know, the, I know, what, that, I know that, what that's like. So. Oh, yeah, man. You know, but, but it's a good problem to have, yes. right? So, um, yeah, I found that over time, you know, you can do the reviews, the previews, and the interviews, and those are all fun. But what I really like to write about is how games are made and also kind of delve into game design and game culture. Um, I wrote a pretty thorough retrospective, I think, on the Metal Gear series for PlayStation magazine at one point that kind of kicked it off. I did some pieces for good old games and then uh, looked around and decided that no one had really told the story of Diablo and Blizzard North in full. It's just kind of, yeah, you know, scattered in fragments on the internet. So I just kind of started stalking people on Facebook and LinkedIn (laughs) to write, stay well and listen. And that also kind of led to me spinning off a little bit about roguelikes, which I included in that book, as you would have to. Yep. Uh, to Dungeon Hacks, because I thought it was a, a genre worth exploring. And you actually spoke to Patrick Klepek, who used to have my exact job here at Giant Bomb, about uh, the, the Stay a While and Listen, your book about Diablo, a couple of years ago. So if people are interested in that, they can go back and, and hear Patrick uh, talk to you a little bit about that that book. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm actually really glad you're kind of stepping in and taking on the reins of, <laughs> of what used to be you know, the Giant Bomb dump truck, because I thought that was a really cool you know, little cast for, for conversations that were, were really fun to have and kind of maybe uh, interesting to a lot of people, but, you know, maybe didn't have a place on the, the proper bomb cast and now beast cast. Right. Sort of well, it's funny you bring that up because I kind of feel like the book that we're here to talk about today, Dungeon Hacks, is kind of contributing in, in the same way to that same sort of need uh, in the larger discourse around gaming in that, you know, I think that it it's chronicling the rise of a genre that we all are we all are more knowledgeable about now than we maybe were five years ago. Um, and it does it in a way that puts the people who developed these games at the, at the front, right? It, it kind of mm-hmm. looks at the creators and the context of their creation and at the technologies that were used to do the creation of, of a bunch of key games very early on in the history of what we now call roguelikes. Um, what right. got you? Was it, so this, was it the Diablo book that really spurred you on to do a whole book about roguelikes? 
It was. You know, roguelikes, I think they're more popular now because we hear the term a roguelike or a roguelike-like, especially compared to popular games like Diablo, Mm -hmm. like FTL. But before I started uh, researching Stay A While and Listen, this was about late 2007, maybe sometime early 2008, I had not played a roguelike. I knew about them because... Uh, when I get really into games, I, I go beyond just playing them. I kind of like to read up on them, you know, read interviews. And I, I had known that Dave Brevik had been into this this game genre called roguelike. But uh, I, I knew that it was turn-based. I knew that death was penalized pretty harshly. But mm-hmm. that was really all I knew about it. So in the process of uh, researching Stay Well and Listen, I kind of just started reading more about them, playing some. And I'm absolutely terrible at them. But I found their composition fascinating and and so relevant because, you know, something I talk about in the book, especially in the, I think it's the 10th chapter, is that even though roguelikes themselves, these, you know, ASCII character text-based games uh, that, you know, look like they, well, like they were born in the 1980s, which they were, uh, will never be mainstream. Uh, So many games are influenced by them that I just thought it was, it was really worth telling stories of the people who kind of created them because I really like people to know the roots of where a lot of their favorite games and systems, game systems, came from. Right, right. You know, it, so it's it's primarily a book about that history, but every now and then you you can kind of feel the pull of of the modern uh, look at roguelikes through games like FTL or Binding of Isaac or any of the dozens of games that have been inspired by roguelike design. Um, and you can kind of see the little, the kind of like the trail back to where some early design choice or some early technological constraint put into place um, uh, a convention that would remain true even today, you know, uh, with, with those designs. And that's always really interesting for me. It is, especially because I'm sure you've seen this, but a lot of times the you can go back to a genre and trace it to its roots, but then you find out that the roots actually go a little deeper than you thought. Mm-hmm. A lot of people credit Resident Evil with creating survival horror. Well, no, it actually didn't. There was, there was um, Alone in the Dark, and then before that, I think it was Sweet Home. Sweet Home is, is, yeah, what I've now come to call the first thing, for sure. Right. But that's not what most people think about, exactly. Right, um, right. And so I think the same thing has almost happened with a lot, of, a lot of roguelikes. I mean, I don't think anyone would call Diablo 1 a roguelike, but so many people in the mainstream demographic probably heard the term roguelike for the first time when they played Diablo. And so that game probably pops in their head. Right. Or even, you know, for a lot of people, even something like NetHack or, or, uh, you know, Angband or, or those things that kind of arose after Rogue or even after some of the games that came out around the time Rogue came out, like uh, right. Below Apple Manor or uh, sort of Fargo, which, which all kind of set into place what we think of now as what the kind of core tenets of, of a roguelike are, um, but didn't, you know, we didn't have the language to talk about the genre in that way yet, you know? Right, right. Um, and Which so, is kind of why, you know, I, I took that first chapter to kind of go back and say, hey, look, the genre is called roguelike, but if you go back a few more years, there are actually people who are influenced by the same sort of things, like D&D and Lord of the Rings, kind of doing their own thing somewhere else from, you know, where Glenn Wickman and Michael Toy started kind of banding about ideas for what became rogue. Yeah, it's really interesting to see what some of the shared influences are. You know, the, there's a, a game called Star Trek, not an officially licensed game by any means, no, no. but that that was influential not only uh, for the creators of Rogue, but but at least one or two other games in this book. We were like, oh well, this game taught us that we could display figures on a screen 
and and you know show traversal through the use of characters on the screen and that's like such a fundamental thing um that it's hard to think about as like exactly how influential that would have been at the time um but you can see that it was something that really stuck in the minds of these creators and and helped guide them towards like okay well what else can i do if i can if we can put a spaceship on a screen that's represented through a single uh, alphanumeric character what else can be displayed that way you know Exactly, exactly. And that's kind of the, the style I took. While I tell the stories of the people, I also tell their stories through talking about how they came up with the you know, specific trappings of their games. Like one thing I did with the Moria chapter was rather than uh, chapter subtitles, mm-hmm. section titles, I did little passages from like, Fellowship of the Ring because I thought that kind of set the mood. Because that's kind of what inspired uh, Robert, who who created created Moria and also you have to really dig into the design to to tell their story because their story and design really go go hand in hand I yeah. mean it's it's funny how a lot of them these games were not planned a lot of mm-hmm. ideas just kind of came up like oh you know what would be cool is this and then they throw it in the game and they're so hard to test of course because procedural content doesn't come around every time you go to level two right or whatever so it was kind of fun to, to read about that and learn about that myself yeah the minds of moria chapter is probably my favorite in the book um i think that those subheaders which are which are quotes from from fellowship uh about the minds of moria that the the game is influenced by a uh, couple with kind of a a structure uh, of looking at robert's life um, that makes the reader, or you know, made me at least feel as if I was going deeper and deeper into into the dungeons, right? Uh, right. And that worked really well. And the other thing about that chapter is I, I feel like Robert's story, in a lot of ways, uh, coupled with I think Angband's, represent a lot of the um, the kind of overall features of a lot of different roguelike development histories. So mm. for so in, in each of those cases you get you get the story of like the hobbyist programmer, the hobbyist game designer who goes through, you know, kind of fits and starts on developing the thing that like the development isn't the main thing this person is doing with their life. It's a hobby that they've picked up and they love and are passionate about, but they can't necessarily develop, you know, work full time on. And there's a split where for for Minds of Moria, you know, Robert's the only person who develops it. Uh, Robert Konecki, is that is that how we pronounce his last name? I believe so, yeah. It's one of those words I actually haven't said out loud <laughs> much, so I right. hope that's pretty yeah. close. Yeah. Uh, so so in, in Minds of Moria's case, um, that is a game that is just his project, and you do a fantastic job of highlighting how his life g- grows and changes and how he leaves development and comes back to it. And then in, in Angband's case, or Angband, I, again, another word I don't say out loud very often, um, <laughs> right. it, showing how that, that game passed from generation to generation of developer and dev team. Um, and in all of the games that you write about, something like that has happened, where you know one person starts, starts it off and then more developers come in and you know, someone leaves the project. Um, and you manage to, you know, I think for the most part, highlight the developments or the the, the uh, contributions that each member of a team makes. Um, and those contributions can can be uh, really varied, right? Um, and and not only varied in terms of what they're aiming to do, but in what it does for the genre of roguelike going forward. So for me, early on, there's a, there's a moment where in the development of Rogue, um, Michael Toy, Michael, is that his first name? Correct. Yeah, uh, I, I believe it's toy. Kind of goes through the the descriptions of what happens and cuts them down, and says like, we don't need this to say a big flowery statement every time that a monster is hit. We just need right. to say goblin is hit. Uh, and then years later, in the development of NetHack, a couple of the developers with NetHack 
do the opposite thing and come in and say, like, well, we can actually be a little more descriptive here. We can talk, we can, whenever you enter a floor, well, well, there will be a line of text that gives you the feeling of how dangerous this floor is. Um, and in that, you can kind of see Michael Toy early on in the history of Rogue pulling back on the reins because it's like, it's too early to get flowery. We need to just get it right. We need to get movement right. We need to get code that doesn't crash. We need to get code that's concise and, and elo- eloquent and elegant in its design. And later, we can talk about floweriness. And, and I think that's also really interesting in the history of roguelikes is now, more and more, we're seeing the, the uh, emergence of games in the roguelike genre that are playing with procedural narrative and procedural storytelling. Um, Which- yeah, you know, and and that's one reason I kind of got in my head to follow along with some of the the programmers who participated in the Seven DRL a couple of years ago because it's really interesting that Rogue's control scheme is so esoteric, and I think one of the biggest hurdles new players have to jump if they want to get into it. Yeah, because absolutely. Rogue was informed by Vi, this text editor, and you know, this text editor kind of came about before the advent of like cursors and being able to just have arrow keys on the Mm -hmm. keyboard or the dumb terminal at the time to move around. So they used like J, K, L, and H. I don't even remember the keys, but it was just, it was not very intuitive that you would use those keys to move. And then years later, other roguelike developers kind of looked at those keys and said, you know, maybe now that we have arrow keys, that kind of makes more sense. And so, and so they made that change. But sometimes there's a lot of resistance to that change. I know that um, I even wrote a, a little a shorter book that's being uh, serialized now on my easy and episodic content about FTL. And uh, Justin Ma and Matt Davis, who made that game, said, yeah, when we described our FTL as a roguelike, we got a lot of backlash mm-hmm. from the roguelike community because they kind of really hold roguelike trappings near and dear to their heart because it's always had such a kind of a cult following, such a niche right. following. And so it's, so it's really interesting to see like, yes, things change, but sometimes it takes a little while because you, you really have to, to dig that, that plan out by the roots and, and plant something else in. Yeah. It's also one of these things where I think the book does a good job of looking at, at showing how a genre can settle into its conventions, even if the initial the, – the creators of, of the key works in the genre didn't have those conventions in mind necessarily. Right? You know, a lot of these developers say, listen, if I could have had graphical you know, representations instead of just ASCII characters, of course I would have done it. That's, that's definitely what thing I would have done. That wasn't uh, available at the time. You know, we couldn't do that. And, right. and, and there are, of course, other people who say – no, the the kind of ASCII simple character stuff is there for you know its simplicity and the fact that it runs on old machines and all that right. other stuff. But it, it it's easy now for purists to say no, the simple alphanumeric characters making up the screen that's the way roguelikes should be. That's the way they've always been for X Y Z reasons. And in fact, no, not exactly. The the, the history is always more complicated. Uh, in the living than afterwards when you when you kind of say this is the key reason why you know right right and one of the I had a set of questions that I asked every developer I talked to for each game and one of those was so did you go with text characters because that's really the only option you had or especially the guys I talked to later on did you stick with them just because that was convention and you know it was even Glenn Wickman the the co-creator of Rogue who was like Mm -hmm. oh man PU, you know, if, yep. if we could have gone graphics, we totally would have gone graphics. It's just that that's the best we could do. The text characters are the best we could do, you know. Yeah. In fact, it, with, with Toy and Wickman, it was even, you know, you get into the fact that, hey, that game wouldn't have existed without a different, uh, another program or another, I guess it was a, was it a program called Curses? Yes. Uh, which was a way of just depicting characters on a screen that someone else had written. Um, and for me, that was really great. And you see this a lot throughout the book where, 
Um, roguelikes are the sort of software that again and again are reliant on other software advances being made. Yes. And often those other software advances um, are being made in, in a kind of uh, either open source or in a, a kind of net commons uh, way. And there's a, a real close connection in this book between the kind of old web, the old way in which computing was done, and the development of roguelikes, the kind of before the enclosure, right? Um, right. Especially when you look at games like NetHack and, and Angband and how different fans are creating, you know, mods for those things or different releasing patches that are unofficial patches but are still useful uh, in that they can like, oh, like this one patch has a really interesting inventory system. Um, and because these are non-commercial games, for the most part, uh, things are just like, it's just a completely different environment for games. It's like a vision into a different world for games in a, in a weird way. Yeah, which I think is especially relevant today with the indie scene just kind of blowing up. It, it's really, uh, I hope the book encourages a lot of people to just sit down and say, you know, the games don't have to be walled gardens. I mm-hmm. can I can be influenced by a game and maybe maybe contribute to that game. And, and, and you know, in the in the case of uh, something like like Angband or, or NetHack, or just I'm going to go do my own thing and maybe encourage people to build on it as well. Right. Well, I think there's a it's a really interesting situation we're in right now. There's a line um, in in I'm trying to remember which chapter it ends up being in, but there's a there's kind of a line. So it comes up a couple of times where developers say the reason we wanted to make a procedurally generated game was we're playing adventure games and we're solving them and we're not happy solving them because I know how to beat this quickly now and procedural generation just gives us more content. It will always this is a game I can play again and again and again. But there's another thing that happens, which is they say. Um, that the the nice thing about procedural generation uh, is that it it can develop lots of, of in- interesting text and lots of interesting uh, sorry content, but there is this trick to it or there is this this problem with it, which is that like sometimes it it doesn't give you something interesting. Um, right. That uh, the exact quote is that uh, making interesting and complex spaces is still sort of an unsolved problem. Uh, that's that was a toy uh, talking about. The, the development of, of kind of procedurally generated spaces in roguelikes. Um, and I think that that's still true today when you look at games that use proc gen. Uh, I think here about games like Starbound, where, um, you know, Starbound or, or you know, I, I suspect No Man's Sky, the development of that game is, is currently deep in trying to figure this out. How do yeah. you make, make it so that when you develop a procedurally generated space, it doesn't just feel like randomly generated geometry, but that it feels like an interesting place with a history and with character. Um, and in, the st- in, in games like NetHack, in games like you know, Angband, where they're non-commercial games, it makes lots of sense for other fans to fill in that gap, to say like, okay, I'm going to program in uh, a new class that has a lot of character to it, or I'm going to program in, I'm going to write... Uh, a bunch of flavor text and some I- that, that's attached to some items. And that will be an interesting way to introduce character to this to this world. Um, but when you see what happens in a, in the case of something like Minecraft or or Starbound, where those are commercial products that then get supported by fan labor, that ends up getting it's interesting and tricky, right? Like I like I'm going to clap all day when it happens in a free game, but when it happens in a game that costs money and then the writers don't the the moderators don't get paid for it, it's like oh, this is a much different situation. Yeah, I think you almost have to have something like that baked into a game from the beginning, kind of like Minecraft. You you cannot go and add something that impactful, that game-changing, 
uh, pardon the pun, <laughs> later on. I think that's why, you know, the internet kind of exploded when Steam and Bethesda tried to sneak in, or not even sneak in, yeah. it's like, hey, guess what? There are paid mods in Fallout 3. Now it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've been playing for this for almost for years. four years. Everything's been free. But it, maybe if they did that for Fallout 4, it would be like, okay, well, from the jump, you know, here it is. Well, like, for me, it, it, you know, it hits a sort of it hits a sort of um, a problem, or not? A, it's a problem that needs to be solved if you're going to use procedural generation. Which is, you know, a game like Starbound or a game like Minecraft can make you know nature endlessly. I can go to a billion planets in Starbound over and over again uh, and look at different trees and different animals and all of that. But but it takes a person at this point to at least put together the building blocks for like cities and structures. Um, where life is uh it takes you know I'll, I'll download a mod in minecraft that will add castles where there are wizards and those castles can even be procedurally generated but it takes another uh, a human has to go in and spend that time to build that stuff um and there are roguelikes right now that are trying to address that i think um there's a game coming out soonish it's it's i think it's at like version 0.6 or something called uh, ultima ratio regum regum mm-hmm. uh sure. which is by mark johnson um, which is like a game completely about uh, a whole a whole procedurally generated societies and histories. Uh, do you think that's a direction that roguelikes are going to go in more like more procedurally generating worlds and and less just dungeons? Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think it's a logical next step. In fact, I actually uh, Mark Johnson was one of my early readers, and he kind of you know figuratively thumped my book and said yes preach it because that's you know a direction obviously he wants to see things going but i mean i think that's the next step you look at games like dwarf fortress sure. and even adom ancient domains of mystery which kind of took took the player out of the dungeon and said here's a whole vibrant world mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's just the logical next step because especially once graphics kind of came into play a lot of people said well you know all dungeons are kind of just moldy and gray so what if we had this whole world? And I mean, you look at the success of Minecraft, which is almost the same thing, except I think what keeps that game interesting is uh, you, the player has a very direct impact on how the world changes. Sure. I mean, I think that is definitely the, the next, that's the next territory to break into. And, it, and it's happening slowly, but it's definitely, it might be slow, but each footprint is huge. Because again, look at Minecraft, like that has just blown every game in the last few years away in, in terms of just revenue. And yeah. I think a lot of people are really eyeing that space. And thinking, how can we make a game that is both procedurally, has procedural generation to, to build a kind of base level world and then also encourages player creativity, uh, player creation, so that there's a feeling of ownership of the space. Right, which is which is really, I think, a lot of that's the big question a lot of people have about No Man's Sky. Like, all right, they they skipped right over the world and went to universe, but <laughs> how much of that is really going to be unique? And am I really going to be able to do more on these planets that I find, other than stick the proverbial flag in the soil? Right. But at the same time, there's another thing that came up again and again in this book, which was developers who said one interesting thing that happens is people assign meaning where there is none. They'll right. come to me and say. This monster is following me. This monster understands what it's learning from my behaviors. Or this monster does, has these behaviors built into it where it, it reacts, you know, this way when I have a sword and this way when I have an axe or something like that. And then the developers are like, no, like that's not – I wish I wish we had the resources to program the monsters in this way, to, to code them in yeah. this way. Um, and eventually, you know, in something like Minds of Moria where the monsters became uh, really interestingly configurable uh, because the tool sets were built for that, they became more advanced. But even then – players were seeing things that they didn't see. 
how much of procedural generation and and monster design and dungeon design and, and the kind of the stuff that we think of as being core to to a roguelike is the kind of almost trickery or like psych- psychological um manipulation i mean that in a good way i mean that in the way that like an artist lets you know trusts the the audience to fill in the blanks in an interesting way i think that as much i mean i think most of that is definitely psychological and i think that's what makes the game fun i don't know if i would qualify nethack as my favorite roguelike but i do think it might be the most diverse just because they really don't have some sort of canon Mm -hmm. or lore that they're trying to come up with like you know in the book i talk about how if you wanted to create a class for a samurai or a barbarian, a very you know uh, conventional cool. fantasy class, right. or like a tourist who uses a camera to fight monsters, you can do that. And I think that's where a lot of the psychology comes into play and also a lot of the interests. Like on the one hand, roguelikes, especially the old school ones like NetHack and, and Rogue and, and Angband, because they didn't have graphics, you could really look at it as, well, they're not really new levels. It's just maybe the same building blocks, uh, blocks configured in a different way. Right. But the, the interest comes when you maybe take that tourist class and you're like, how on earth would this guy even fight an orc <laughs> or a dragon? And so you play around and before you know it, you are coming up with your own backstory for a character and even charting your own journey. It mm-hmm. just makes it that simple addition of a class, which really has no graphics and is just an at symbol like any other at symbol, has, has kind of tricked you into playing the game in a new way. And it is new. I mean, you, you're, you're experiencing things for the first time. Your battle against an orc with a tourist is very different than if you use the samurai or, you know, some sort of caster class. Right. Yeah, you know, there's a, a line also where, where someone says, you know, uh, I think, again, this was Toy and Wickman who said, we wanted to be surprised by our own game. You know, we wanted to make a game that would surprise us even though we made it. Uh, and I love that line because it's a reminder that emergence in games, this thing that we talk about a lot now as we have games that are physics driven and that are, that lean into it where, you know, you look at something like, uh, the Saints, Saints Row 3 or Far Cry 2, 3, and 4, or where it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, all these things are just running into each other and interesting things are happening. That's hardly new. In fact, like that, that has been key to systems driven games for a long time. Yeah, it really has, and I, I always go back to Diablo because it's it's one of my favorite games. Obviously, it would have to be to you know spend years <laughs> researching writing these books, but I, I don't know. Again, I wouldn't maybe qualify Diablo one as the best in that series. Everybody knows that's two. That's not even up for debate. Uh-huh. But one, I think, is still my favorite and the most interesting because most of that game was procedural. Right. There were certain static elements like okay if you if you get the butcher quest which Mm -hmm. wasn't a guarantee he's always going to be on level two but where you don't know whereas as the series moved on in two and especially in three much more of the world was was static and so you know and this is something the graphics do in in diablo 3 when you go into yet another graveyard or another you know sprawling plains with goatmen running around it doesn't really feel that different because Mm. Only, you know, the configuration of the trees, like, oh, now that tree's over on the left and so the right is different. The old school games like Diablo 1, like these roguelikes are the ones that really kind of mixed and matched everything and created new experiences that were genuinely interesting every time. That's not to say that Diablo 3 is a bad game, but it is definitely, (laughs) that's an example of, I think, where other than like random item generation. Right. uh, You know, that series has, has moved away from proc generated levels. Right. And again, uh, I don't think either one of us is saying, 
hey, all games should be procedurally generated. You know, no, no, no. we started off by talking least, about what, one of my, I mean, my favorite series of, of the last console generation was Dark Souls. Right, exactly. And that, that is the game predicated entirely on the enemies being in the same places, moving in the same patterns every time, because the goal is, is to learn those enemies, their movesets, their locations, and figure out the best way to to combat them based on you know your skills as a player and also you know maybe moves and items that benefit your class but it's it's one of those things where i think when when you introduce procedural generation you definitely want to do it in a way that that is uh, that is interesting and kind of keeps your players wanting to come back for more and right. try new things over and over so you said that nethack was not your favorite uh roguelike do you have no one? i think probably my f- my favorites would be I think that there's an interview in the um, bonus rounds mm-hmm. appendix of uh, one of the bonus rounds of Dungeon Hacks with a guy named John Harris and he says that Rogue might still be his favorite because it holds up so well huh. and I, I kind of agree with that I also really like Moria and Angban because I'm a, I'm a big I'm not such a big Tolkien guy that I've like read and memorized the Silmarillion uh-huh. but I really like that world and, and kind of those conceits and so I, I just really enjoy immersing myself uh, in those games it's almost it's interesting because you know i talked earlier about how uh in procedurally generated games there someone has to fill in the gap that procedural generation can't uh in terms of character and tolkien has done that for so many roguelikes in a weird way he did so you know uh, ahead of time a little bit preemptively but but his work is pretty key for for the feeling of those games which is which is interesting yeah, I mean, he's definitely, I think he laid the foundation for fantasy literature. I think, you know, I mean, so many developers that I talked to for Dungeon Hacks were influenced by Dungeons and & Dragons and by Tolkien, mm-hmm. because those were the go-to fantasy worlds of the day. I mean, now we have so many, but back then it was, you know, D&D and Tolkien, and it's funny that, I mean, you're right, like they're, you know, we have, we have, uh, we keep going back to those wells because they're easily understood. Like, mm-hmm. hey, Mithril's armor and orcs are bad. Right. So let's, yep. let's kill those. Yep. And again, likewise, uh, I love games that play with those things instead yeah, of just letting yeah. them stay. Um, so a couple more questions and I'll, I'll let you go. What do you think, if someone's listening to this and they've played, let's say, something like Rogue Legacy or FTL or Galaxy uh, and are now interested in like dipping their toes in the old quote-unquote, old-school roguelike, where do they start? I I think you want you definitely want to treat this as a staircase rather than a bungee jump. I think that anyone, even you know people who love like FTL or Rogue Legacy, would have a pretty tough time acclimating to a game like Rogue mm-hmm. or Moria. But um, there are a lot of developers out there who, who love roguelikes but you know, are far enough removed from their, their origins to say, you know, let, let's change some of this and make it a little bit more accessible. There's a great game out there, an indie game called Cardinal Quest, which mm. is written by, uh, written by a guy named Ido Healy, who I interviewed for uh, the One Week Dungeon 70 RL book. Right. And what's really cool about it is it has graphics, but they're kind of like, eh, I would say, 16-bit style. So that's, you know, definitely a nice middle ground for someone who might not want to go right from, like, Rogue Legacy to Rogue. <laughs> right. Um, but also, like, movement is very simple. You just, you definitely just bump into monsters to hit them. Uh, they strip down all, like, 200 keys that most roguelikes need down to, like, four or five. Mm-hmm. So it's really a good way to say, you know what, I've tried this, I like this. And so from there, I might go and try NetHack and take a look at that. That's good. That's a good idea. Um, you know, because even in, in Cardinal Quest, it has the interesting interactions between characters and objects um, that that is kind of 
one of the things that seems true for most roguelike games, you know? Yes. Uh, so I guess the last thing is, and this is a kind of a, a similar question, maybe an adjacent question, but, you know, there's lots of things that that game design writ large has absorbed from roguelikes. You know, we've, we have lots of games with permanent death. We have lots of games with randomization, procedural generation. Um, we have lots of games with interesting interaction between different different types of game objects. Is there is there anything that you think gets short shrift or that people could still learn from roguelikes that they haven't yet as developers? I I think variety. I think that a lot of people look at their procedurally generated levels or items and say, well, look, we have a, a lot of variety, but maybe there's really not a lot of difference between the short sword and the bastard sword. Mm. Again, even though like I, mean, I like NetHack, I don't think it's a bad game. I just think it's you know even as as some people discuss in the book, like you kind of have to really bone up on NetHack if you want to do well on it. But one thing I, I think it does really super well is having all these sorts of just completely off the wall character classes mm-hmm. that intrigue you. Like oh yeah, again, I mean my go to is the tourist. Like how would a tourist survive in a dungeon? <laughs> and I think that's the sort of thing. Like just really. I mean, you can look at a lot, so many modern fantasy games. Like, I mean, Demon Souls. Demon Souls was very kind of by the book gothic horror fantasy. Right. There, there weren't a lot of unique classes in that. And even though, I mean, it was a fun game because the weapons all had weight primarily, and because death had meaning. But then you fast forward to something like Dark Souls Two, and it's like, all right, we're not going to take this. Uh, it's not going to be this hard-boiled, really gritty, bleak theme. You mm-hmm. have all these crazy weapons that you can try, and which you know comes up with all these character builds. So that even though you're you're playing the same areas over and over, and those never change, the the variety of weapons is is truly assorted and unique. And I, I just think that you know stuff like that, whether it, whether it be applied to to character classes or weapons or level design. Create something truly unique without just you know leaning on procedural generation to make the hall turn left instead of right. <laughs> That's that is, I think, pretty pretty much the best way to say it because so many people think about roguelikes and procedural generation in that way. Uh, right. That's the best it can do, uh, and it might be able to do more. And and if you can ask yourself that, then maybe you can get something better out of it. You know, you can right, demand right. that Which of yourself. Yeah, like I always have to point back to Diablo 1. Like it wasn't just a matter of the whole kind of curving to the left instead of the right, but it was also, yeah, you've played the butcher quest, but maybe you won't get it this time around. Maybe right. you'll have to go, you know, clean up the poison well water or something. Mm-hmm. These are all quests you're familiar with, but you never kind of tackle the same groups of them. And that's one thing that kind of keeps me going back to that game all these years later. All right. So for a real last question, in mm-hmm. just a couple of sentences, why are you a big fan of Dark Souls 2? I think the character build depth is extraordinary. I can still go back and look at YouTube. Just last night, I typed in Dark Souls 2 builds, and I looked at the top 10 most off-the-wall builds, and I was like, you know, I need to try that. (laughs) That's why I keep going back to that game. I don't think the world design is the best, but the character builds are so much fun to play. I 400 hours later, I'm still finding things to do in that game. That's more than a couple sentences, but I'll pretend that I inserted some semi Yeah, Yeah, those are definitely, it was actually just one big sentence, believe it or not. Yeah, so exactly. that's great. Thanks <laughs> so much for joining me, David. Where can people find uh, the book? Uh, Dungeon Hacks, I mean, probably the go-to place. Look at Amazon. The paperback version should be available by uh, Monday, August 10th, which is the book's official release date. You can also find it on Kindle, but it's also out on everything. Uh, go to Press. Start Press, that's the publishing company, press-start-press.com, and it'll be available for uh, popular audiobook streaming services, Kindle, Paperback, uh, Nook, 
iBooks, everything, words all over. Is there a roguelike I can play where I just find scattered pages of the book around the dungeons? That would be really nice. I should work with the guys who made Slenderman and Amnesia to make right. that happen. Perfect. Oh. That's it. <laughs> Thanks so much, David. Thanks, Austin. I really had fun.